theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaquia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Amy. Good morning, Dr. Joy. How are you on this fine fall morning? Oh, not only is it a fall morning, it is cold outside and it's the day after Halloween. We had one trick-or-treater and it was my son. <laughs> yeah, we kind of had the lights off. We were not into the spirit of Halloween, but I am in the spirit of today's conversation, which we're going to be talking about a lot over the next few years. And it is about what is inclusive learning and teaching and why it's so important. And that's not something that was a thing when you, you and I were in school or even when our children was in school, but we're going to talk about the significance of that. And I know we're doing a lot at Governor State University about inclusivity and teaching. We're part of the diversity pipeline pilot with the state. We will be implementing culturally responsive teaching and leading standards. So today I'm excited that we're going to talk about this topic and why we think it's so important. And I bet you're excited that we are going to be talking to a scientist. Very excited, kindred spirits. Absolutely. So we were introduced to this co-author through the book, What Inclusive Instructors Do, Principles and Practices for Excellence in College Teaching. So Khadija Mitchell co-wrote this book with Tracy Addy and Derek Duke and Mallory Sorrell. We were able to get connected with Dr. Mitchell. Well, we have that science connection and teaching connections. So we really wanted to talk about that background. Dr. Khadija Mitchell is of Lafayette College and passionate about teaching biology courses that intersect with public health. Currently, she teaches precision medicine and molecular genetics, and she integrates research findings from her lab into each class takes ideas generated in the classroom back to her laboratory for further study. And her research group is called the Integrative Translational Laboratory for Applied Biology. This lab family uses biological, environmental, and social clues to fight cancer. Her vision is to advance the discovery of differences in tumor biology across human populations for improved prevention, diagnosis, prognosis, and treatment outcomes. So 
Welcome to our show, Dr. Mitchell. And our audience is like, wait a minute, we're, we're talking about research labs yes, and, we and classrooms. What? what are we doing? We're not, this is teaching and learning theory versus practice. Why are we talking about research and biology? But we have, we welcome you to our show and they're going to find out why. It is wonderful to have you with us, Dr. Khadija Mitchell. Thank you so much for inviting me to come talk with you all today. So you are both a teacher and a researcher. I am just so attracted to you when I found you. So I want to just give some background here. Our EPP, Educator Preparation Provider, we are reading the book, What Inclusive Instructors Do. And Dr. Amy's going to get into some of that a little bit, but we are educating ourselves because there's a lot of changes going here, much needed changes, like all over the place that are going on here at Governor State University. We're implementing culturally responsive teaching and leading standards. We're part of the diversity pipeline pilot for the state. And we love our teacher candidates and our educator candidates, you know, administrators, school support personnel, teachers, all of them. We love them. And we have a diverse body of candidates. And we want to attract more diversity and we want to be the best that we can be. So the first book that we selected was the book that you co-authored. As Dr. Amy said, you wrote this book with some of your friends. And why did we choose Dr. Khadija Mitchell to interview? Because you're awesome. I said she's a kindred spirit. She's science. I have a science background. She's a teacher. She's in that underrepresented group. You're a beautiful person of color. And I said, this is who I want to interview. So, but you teach precision, medical and molecular genetics, and you are researching to advance discovery of the difference in tumor biology across human population for improved prevention, diagnosis, prognosis, and treatment outcomes. And you're doing this all over. You've come up with some wonderful research and you're finding that people are of color are prone to some diseases and you're looking at all of that. So I just want to talk about how the two intersect. So I'm reading this research information about you and I'm looking at this book, what inclusive teachers do, you know, and you're like, how do these two intersect? Talk about the how, when, why, how did we get here to this, this book from your background? Okay, so thank you so much for that warm introduction. I'm very honored and humbled to be here with you all today. So I guess for me, it really started with why I love genetics and thinking about how when I did genetic research, I would include both students as well as the community in my work. So for me, I have always had a penchant for talking about tough topics with everyone, right, whether you're in kindergarten or whether you're a college student. And so there's a lot of similarities between my research work and involving communities, particularly communities of color, and the same as involving students, whether that's in my lab or in the classroom. And so, in fact, it's the same approach that I take that everyone can learn regardless of their background, and the fact that everyone has the same right to equity. And to me, having health equity is a basic human right, and having higher education equity is the same. 
so that's kind of how those two intersect. I really view them through the same lens, my research. And I think that bringing diverse students from the classroom into the research lab, if anything, brings fresh perspectives and ideas and advances research in ways that we could not have done if I were not thinking with an inclusive lens. Amy, can I ask you a question before you ask your question? And this is for both of you, Amy, just to kind of set the tone. What do we mean by inclusive learning and teaching, teaching and learning, inclusive teaching and learning? I'd like to think in my children's lit class or when I'm teaching my secondary folks that the way in which we are honoring students in the classroom, we can see through their eyes, through their lenses and provide approachable text and materials. So I love what Amy just said. I think that really seeing things from the student's perspective and having a student-centered learning environment, but making sure that we're cognizant and intentional about every student that's in that room. So I think it's really easy to have a blanket statement approach and say, oh, all students, right? But that means we really have to know who those students are in the room to truly be inclusive. And that takes intentionality. Absolutely. The intentionality, when you're looking at your curricular materials, can students see themselves? And that's what I'm saying right now to the people who are in my children's literature class. They're early childhood teacher educators. Maybe they're in social work. Maybe they're just taking the class because they want to get a humanities credit. But still, yeah, we need to see whether there are the selections of children's literature that they choose to put on their shelf or to provide to a child in their lives is inclusive. It honors diversity. You can see yourself in it or you can see other cultures. Why wouldn't the same be true in any of our content areas where we can see and honor different diverse perspectives? But I want to know more about you. Let's backtrack a little bit because I think there's a foundational piece here that our listeners need to know. How did you get your start in science, specifically in genetics? Well, you know, I have to credit Amy that with my mother. So when I was about 12, a family friend of mine went into a sickle cell crisis. And I asked my mother, how come they're having such a painful experience right now? And instead of giving me an answer, my mom said, well, you should look it up. And this was before the internet. So I went to my world book and I did not find it in my encyclopedia. So I called a local hospital and I was connected with the genetic counseling center. And I went down and I spoke with a genetic counselor and I actually started volunteering there for four years. And I would say the rest is history. So I learned so much about genetics. And a lot of that was because of the encouragement. My mom really giving me the freedom to be curious and not to just immediately have the answer and giving me the agency to go find those answers out for myself, even though I was a child. So how did science then lead you to studying inclusive teaching? Where is that bridge? That is a great question. And to be honest, I have to say it was my lived experience. There are a lot of things that I think we take <laughs> for granted when we think of people's identity. So we immediately think of the visible things, but, you know, there are these invisible aspects of our identity. And I feel like it was the mashup of all of those that really shaped my experiences 
uh, in STEM classrooms. And sometimes it was the feeling of being welcomed and belonging. And others, I had the feeling of being the other. And I identify as a woman, I identify as a black woman, specifically first-generation college students. So that's not something you can see on my sleeve, but it definitely shaped and impacted my higher education experiences. And I think it's really important that although I understood the curriculum, the STEM curriculum, there was a certain hidden curriculum that I didn't quite understand. And that really made me think, you know, one day when I'm a professor, I want to be mindful that everyone is welcomed in my space and to not just relegate students to the things I see, but also seek to learn from them some of the things that I can't see, right? And so that is really how that started leading me to inclusive teaching. And as I was throughout my training, I started understanding that there actually is evidence-based literature surrounding how these identities shape how teaching and learning. I can recall working with some scientists coming out of the industry that wanted to become teachers was a huge challenge. And I had the opportunity of supervising those in chemistry. And I had to talk to one gentleman, I said, you're teaching chemistry, you're teaching chemistry, but you're not teaching students. And he was like, what do you mean? I was like, you know, you and this board, you got this great relationship going on with the blackboard. You have zero relationship going on with the students behind you. We need to really transform that to where you're teaching students. Our job is for students to learn. Our job is not to teach. We are merely the tool, right? for that learning to occur. And your research, when I look at your research, it focuses a lot on the marginalized population. And in my opinion, you know, your book also focuses on that marginalized college student and how can we make them successful through education and how we instruct them. And again, talking about that hidden agenda, can you say more? And I want to hear more about the outcome of even both. What is your outcome and your hope of this work? My hope would be that every instructor would recognize that inclusive teaching is not something you need a PhD in. <laughs> it's something that we all can do, right? It's something that in small ways, in small actions can lead to huge impacts. And I think that I would hope that the feeling of it's too hard or time intensive and that deters people sometimes from engaging in the inclusive practices, that that barrier would be lowered. I would hope that they would engage more with their students in a meaningful way. And, you know, I think the last thing that is really important is that you can start to be an inclusive instructor at any time, at any point in a class or your career. So it doesn't matter if you're new to being an instructor or you've been doing this for decades. We hope that this book would actually be a guide that can transform classrooms, that could transform departments, and also from an institutional perspective, that this would be something that would be institutionalized, that everyone would be on board with this same mission and vision. You mentioned something that I want to underscore. You say it, it takes work. You can't just have a PhD without knowing how to teach. Something I didn't even mention in your bio was that you have certificates on top of the PhD. Tell us about your pursuit of teaching and learning. Right. So thank you so much for that, Amy. I think that it's really important that we 
understand, I want to speak specifically from the perspective of a STEM professor. I think we often kind of say, and my fellow disciplinarians in humanities and social science, I think are excellent <laughs> at inclusive teaching because I think they center a lot of their work in their their day-to-day thinking and envisioning about this type of thing. But my colleagues in STEM disciplines, we have less exposure to that. So I was very mindful that I knew that I needed to be trained and learn from great educators to be an inclusive instructor one day in my space. So I got a teaching certificate along with my Ph.D., so concurrently, from the Johns Hopkins University. They have a Preparing Future Faculty Teaching Academy. And so I completed that curriculum. And also as a postdoctoral fellow at the National Institutes of Health, there is the Office of Intramural Training and Education, and they specifically have a teaching and learning certificate for sciences that teach science. So I also completed that curriculum. And so by the time I actually became a professor, I had a lot of experience and opportunities to incorporate inclusive teaching, to take it from theory and to put it into practice. You're talking our language when you were talking about theory versus practice. We really should change the name of this. <laughs> they go hand in hand, right? They do. But we exactly. have talked about this inclusivity and we said generally what that would mean. Okay. So curricular materials, but we need some concrete examples perhaps to make it a little clearer what that might mean. What do you do on a regular basis in your college classes that others might consider? Oh, Amy, that is such a great question. So one thing I love about the book when you're writing is the practical tips, right? I like that there were strategies. I like that there were questions that would lead you to change something, that you can actually see some tangible things. So some of the things that I do in my classroom, you know, I like to think of my classes as a place where everyone feels at home. One thing that I do to everyone when they come to my home, I typically give them something that makes them feel they belong. And so I give my students a greeting card. So even before they step foot into my classroom, the very first contact they have with me is me sharing something about myself, me telling them, you know, you're welcome here, and I want to learn more about you. I use something called the Who's in Class form, is what you talk about in the book. And so that is an opportunity. It's a form that we use in, I use in the first two class sessions and I get to know the students. So there are some general questions, but then there's open-ended questions. They can share whatever they want. What I do is I take that form. I actually put it together in a presentation and I share it back with the class and I use it to tweak the semester. There's opportunities for them to share topics they want to learn. And so I have openings in the syllabus. It's a living, breathing document. It's the shared contract between me and the students. So they're able to offer up topics and things that we would learn in that semester. That is one thing that I think is a concrete, it lets them know that this is a shared space. So I also, at the beginning of class, particularly lab classes, we do something called the fist of five, where they can just say how their week is going. They can say how what is happening in that class fits in context into the other things that they're learning. Sometimes there's a clash of topics or different in perspective. And especially because in my lab, we do a health disparities research project. And so some of them are taking sociology classes where they're 
we're talking about health disparities. They're taking psychological classes and we're talking about health disparities. And so they're able to integrate that learning as well. So just sharing about themselves in that space. But then I also incorporate technology. I lean into technology. I'll tell them, hey, Google this. Tell me who is this person? What fun fact did you find out about it? How does it apply to what we're learning? And and I think the most impactful thing that we do is I bring weekly hot topics into the classroom. And these are topics that are at the intersection of science and society, so for me. So that includes problem-based learning sets. We've done escape rooms. We've had genetics and ethics movie nights. So these things that they see that the things that they're learning in the classroom come from their world, right, and that this is not a divorced thing as you walk out the room, you leave that behind, because this is a part of their also lived experience. So those are just a couple examples of things that I always do that students really, really give me positive feedback that they would love to do more. So I love those examples. So thank you, Dr. Amy, for even asking that question, because these are examples that any professional educator can bring into their classroom. There's a couple that I, I really like that I do. I do a me bag at the beginning of the semester. So first day, and I tell them in advance, but some of them forget, bring five things in a bag that represent who you are. And then they pull, start pulling the things out and they talk about why that's, that's significant in their life. And I love it for people who forget the assignment because on their body, they have at least three to five things that represent who they are. So you'll get someone, they'll pull out their cell phone and talk about how they can't live without this and their lipstick, all of those things. So it not only helps me to connect with them, the entire room now, all of the students are now connected because they see how much they have in common. So I love that example. But we have some naysayers, right? What do you say to educators who really don't subscribe to this kind of thinking and that this is not important and maybe students need to assimilate to however we're teaching? So what, what do we say to those naysayers? For the most part, I say you don't have to take my word for it. Look at the evidence. I think a lot of times people say, think about inclusive teaching as a difference of opinion or perspective, but the reality is inclusive teaching is good teaching. There are evidence-based metrics that show us that. And I think some of, I guess, the realms that we see the most evidence is mitigating the impacts of stereotype threats, since we're talking about often marginalized students. There are tons of articles about self-affirmation and how that reinforces students' feelings of integrity, of self-worth. That actually can reduce the effects of the stereotype threats we see, some of the achievement gaps. There's studies that show improved not just the quantitative metrics like grades and GPA, but even qualitative things like greater sense of belonging. So I think that I would say there are to look to the scholarship on that. Something else, when you talk about student persistence, I was told when I was teaching middle school, we would have these staff meetings and maybe that maybe we were dealing with discipline issues or maybe we were dealing with academic issues. But the principal always told us the parents aren't keeping the better child at home. Who we have in front of us is who we are teaching. We can't wish for better students. We can't 
think, well, I don't, I don't know what I can do with this group. Yes, you can with inclusivity that you're talking about, but it is a struggle from K to 20. What is the teacher's obligation to ensure the students are successful? What is the student's obligation? And how do we meet in the middle somewhere? Do you have some thoughts on that? Amy, that's a great question. And often in my circles, we have that discussion, right? I think that as educators, we should be able to provide students with everything that they need to be successful at that time. And it may mean that there is some supplemental things and support that they need. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that students have power and agency in their learning. This is not a passive process, it's an active process. And I think the best way to that is to talk about expectations and to understand what the student's expectations is of their learning and how they need to persist in their understanding of what persistence is. I think a lot of times from an educator's perspective, we have this view of what we think it a student's persistence is and doesn't necessarily align with what the student thinks. So I think one right there is really having this these expectations. I would be remiss and I'd say I viewed sometimes as like the challenging professor, but students still take me for multiple classes. Why? Because they recognize that I know that they can rise to the occasion. It may be challenging, maybe things they never saw before, but they know that they have the tools to be successful, that there's nothing prohibiting them from that. And I think really tapping into intrinsically, why do they persist? Then, you know, I ask them, what are you going to do with this knowledge after you leave this class? Why are you taking this class? What is this going to contribute to your ultimate goal? And I think that helps when they think about that intrinsic motivation for their persistence versus this extrinsic expectation of why I would like them to be successful. So I think that that is kind of the thing that we need to emphasize and focus on. We're all in higher ed, but this conversation is not just about higher ed. This is just applicable in P-12, if not more so, especially now when we see that the diversity of P-12 students have changed so drastically over the years, more than 50% of our student population in P-12 are people of color and still our teaching population is 80% white. And so I think this topic becomes very important because we are who we are and we bring what we bring to the table. Let's talk about how important it is for teachers to be inclusive because, again, we are who we are. And and sometimes I look at this topic sort of like ELL. We're talking about English language learners and that unlike the bilingual teacher, you don't need to know everybody's language but you need to respect and be open to everybody's language. And then we need to draw from their backgrounds to help them. Just because I am who I am in my race and my ethnicity, and I don't have all of your experiences, I need to number one, acknowledge that we have saint-like experiences, different experiences. We learn differently. And then how can we address things that way? Let's just talk about how important is it for these teachers to be inclusive when they have such a diverse classroom? Joy, I think thank you so much for that. I think that was a, a great question. And I want to tell you, I'm going to use the me bag because I love that. <laughs> I'm going to make sure I go back to you that. Can, you can use it. <laughs> and so one thing that 
I'd like to share with you all and audiences that I actually at one point for two years taught a pre-K classroom when I was in college. It was a program called Jumpstart that paired college students with pre-K. That Jumpstart actually is one of the reasons why I view teaching now the way that I do because it talked about different types of learners and intelligence. And I think that was the only space that I saw that. And so thinking about what you're talking about, like diversity in your classroom, and if you have diversity in your student population, we're talking about, like you said, P P through 12, right? Uh, I think that it's important to recognize. I'm a fan of John Dewey and thinking about, like, constructivist learning theory. I think that he really emphasized inquiry and integration of real-world activities into your classroom. And I think that can happen if you're five or if you're 15, in that children see the world in a certain way, and they're inquisitive just by nature. And so I think that young people that were able to take their experiences in the classroom and to relate to them, and that in one way is affirming them, it's acknowledging them, but it's recognizing that it could be distinct from your own experience. It's amazing sometimes when we go, I often go to elementary schools, and we're talking about, like, for example, DNA. And their understanding of what DNA is and what you can use it for is is mind-blowing. And so that means that they have already engaged with this before they see me 10 years later or so. And I think that every single instructor, no matter what you teach, should recognize that that diversity and don't underestimate that. You should leverage that, right? The diversity is an asset, And I think that is what is uh, critical. And the thing that uh, we talk a lot about in the book is building positive relationships. No matter what you teach, no matter, you know, what classroom, what level, is that the building of the positive relationships is what leads to these better learning outcomes. So it doesn't matter what the particular student's background or the instructor's, and that point, if you're building a meaningful, lasting relationship with those students. We are talking to Dr. Khadija Mitchell and having a fascinating conversation about diversity, inclusivity, and honoring the students who are in front of us. And you said something that I really want to highlight. It's not just about honoring diversity, which is absolutely important, but leveraging diversity. That tells me that we are doing more than giving a nod to who's in our classroom, but that they are bringing some really unique and different perspectives that we can learn from as well. And they can learn from each other. Some students come into our classrooms with varying background knowledge. And sometimes we need to help build that background knowledge to help them be more successful in our classrooms. What are some things that you do to help bring everyone into that same learning space and same playing field? Oh, Amy, that's a great question, and I think that uh, you guys have all the great questions. (laughs) I love it. So, you know, one thing that's really, really important, and I I mentioned I was a fan of John Dewey, right? No one lives in a vacuum, right? So everyone's coming into the classroom with some type of knowledge. So what I like to do is I like to acknowledge that, hey, even I don't know everything on this topic, I know I'm the instructor, and that we're going to learn some things together. So I remind the students that, you know what, you may know a little bit about this, And then what I do is I crowdsource from the class. And then collectively, I say, you know what? As a class, you guys know even more. And now I'm going to add a little bit. 
So it's not making them feel like they don't know anything. So that's like the first thing I do. But also I do provide concrete resources to help. So in addition to the scaffolding on of the, like the new material, I do give them things that are concrete resources to supplement what's happening in our classroom. I recognize that people had different previous preparation. And that doesn't mean they shouldn't be successful in this current moment. So I make sure not to compound previous educational inequities and that I try to level this playing field, so to speak. So sometimes I say, you know what, here's a reading list. Here are activities. Here are videos. There's, I recognize that people learn in different ways and integrate things in different ways. And also I have what's called essential office hours. And essential office hours are basically office hours that everybody has to come through in the semester. It's a one-on-one meeting with me. And these essential office hours, we mentioned them in the book, that's where I really tap into and say, okay, well, how's it been when you're doing this on your own? I also think what's important for students who don't have particular background knowledge is their understanding of how long it would take to master something. So with that, then we have a discussion. So some <laughs> one time a student, I said, well, how long have you been preparing this particular topic, your, your understanding of it? And they said, 30 minutes. And I realized, I said, this will probably take about two hours. Just their perception of like how they study and how they learn, that has changed over time. They have so many more tools and resources at their disposal. And so I think that is something that is really important is understanding where they are and, and not necessarily, I, I think this is very hard for instructors to do, is recognizing that the tools are different now than maybe we would have approached something. And we can't necessarily say that, oh, it's not the most effective because it's not the way that we did it. We have to understand, okay, well, what are you using? So right now, a lot of students use at least in, I know, like my, and I help with a high school class and as well as my class now, they use kind of like Quizlet, this technology tool to review things. And I told them, I said, well, this is a different type of learning and, and memory, but maybe you want to use a, a piece of paper or, or turn it over, right, and ask yourself these questions in a different way, the same content and material, because it's accessing a different part of your brain, right? And I think that is new to them, too, that somebody said, oh, this is a different way to study, that there are different ways to study in in master's material. So when it comes to the background, I make sure that they have different ways to engage with the material in different types of modalities. So that has proven to be really effective, especially for the first-generation students, because they're not aware of where do they go to get some of this background knowledge. I just give it to them. It's not a seeking expedition. It's not Lewis and Clark, right? I give them the tools that they need to be successful. We don't want to give them those those barriers. Right. And we've talked about some big things that can be implemented in the classroom, some whole whole activities, the me bag or the resources, technology, infusing technology. And that can be overwhelming for someone just wanting to take a look and start tiptoeing into better practices for inclusivity. What are some small changes educators can make in the next hour <laughs> to meet the, <laughs> better meet the needs of students? Something that is small and they can start working towards these better practices. Oh, Amy, so that's, a, I think, a really thought-provoking question. I guess what I would say is some of the small things you can do is even before your course starts, set a positive and welcoming tone. So like a preterm, a welcome statement or a video. I know like sometimes I've done a trailer for the class 
students like movies. <laughs> it's like this is what you're going to learn throughout like this time, right? I think a small thing, but even a statement, like sending them out. I think the physical environment we often underestimate. So a small thing is just the way that you situate desks. Or is this in a circle, right? And when students walk in, they see there's equality here. I think that is something that's small, just the way you situate desks. Sometimes in my smaller classes, we actually, at the beginning of class, turn the tables and chairs so that we're all sitting facing one another. So that is like a small thing. I think these office hours or, or having meetings with students, those are small things. And I think that can happen throughout the duration of a course. The physical environment, activities that would incorporate diverse perspectives in the curriculum, right? in a classroom, student information surveys, just brief surveys, who likes this? And I think finally, the thing that I would say is a small thing is encouraging students to share how they felt in the classroom space. That's very easy to get that feedback, how welcome they felt. Do they feel like they're a member of the field or that community of practice? Do they know whether this is, do you know your colors now? We all know our colors now. Or do you know how to cure this disease? And I think the most powerful thing is for instructors to wrap up a course and share with the students what they've learned from them because that makes the classroom more inviting for whether you take a next iteration or another course, a student may want to join you, or that students would tell someone else, you know, I really, I feel that I belonged in that space, right? And so those little things that even on the last day of class, hey, I learned this all from you. How do you feel in this space? Those are small things, little surveys that you can check the pulse of a classroom. You're saying those are small things. I want to give another small thing. You know, and our listeners, you search for Dr. Khadija Mitchell, you will see smiles. You will see pages and pages of Dr. Khadija's smile. That just speaks volume. In your profile, I added your photo because it just made me happy to see your smile and it's infectious. And I think that a smile is very welcoming in a classroom and to say that you're welcome. I remember signing up for college courses when I was a freshman and there were other people in line telling us who not to take. And because these were not welcoming teachers, these were not teachers, inclusive teaching styles. And you talked a little bit about differentiating instruction. That's not something we talk about a lot in higher ed. We prepare our candidates to do differentiated instruction, but oftentimes in higher ed, the professor doesn't try to meet the candidate where they are. We, we talk about how kindergartners come to kindergarten with all these different levels, right, of learning. Some went to preschool, some were at home, some know their colors, some don't. But it's the same in higher ed. We're getting people in our classroom that have been out of school for 10, 15 years. And that can be very, very challenging. So if we're not able to differentiate our instruction and kind of meet them where they are to bring them up to where they're supposed to be, that's what Amy talked about before when we have a problem with our persistence rate and they can't maintain because we are not giving them the support system and valuing them to say, I value you. And because I value you, let me provide all these other opportunities by which you can be successful. Because it's easy to turn a blind eye and let them fail. 
It takes extra work at all levels from P12 and higher ed to differentiate instruction to say, I see you, I value you, and I'm willing to meet you where you are. I love that. I love that, Dr. Joy. Well, and I'm glad you were able to meet us where we are. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. I hope that our listeners will check out this book, check out the resources about you. We called upon you because you're a scientist and you have so much passion for teaching, but your co-authors also have that passion. And we do encourage our listeners to check out what inclusive instructors do. Well, yes. And one thing I'd like to, I guess, wrap up and share with the the audience is that inclusive teaching, I think we talk a lot about, we think about diversity, we think about equity, and we think about inclusion, right? And I think inclusive teaching recognizes the diversity and it calls us to perform equitable acts in the classroom so just everyone feels that they belong and this book, I, I feel like this was a gift I would have given to myself my first year of teaching. And it's a gift that also makes me challenge and, and continue to strive to be a more inclusive instructor. It's, not, it's an ongoing process, right? I think that that's what's one thing I would like to leave the listeners with is that you're, we're always thinking about how we can make people feel more welcome, the same way we would want people to think that way for us and ourselves. And so I'm really happy that I was able to spend time with you two today and also with the audience and be more than happy if anybody ever wanted to have further discussions about inclusive teaching, they can just shoot me an email. I love it. Thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate having this conversation and look forward to more. Yes, we will make the link to the book available and we will add your email address. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.